Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week, the night is dark and full of plot errors. If you're just hate-watching Game of Thrones, watch Barry or Dead to Me instead. They're probably better shows at this point. And with me this week, we have a special guest to discuss one of the more interesting questions in football. We've got Dr. Eric Eager, data scientist at PFF, with us to discuss his recent article discussing the importance of coverage versus pass rush. If you haven't read the article on Pro Football Focus, I would highly recommend giving that article a read. I think it would add some important context to the show. This is one of the more interesting questions I think that's been in and around football circles over the last couple of years, and he put some real rigor into creating an article with his fellow colleague, friend of the pod, George Shahuri. And so we really were hoping to kind of get at the core of the question, because if you've listened to the show for a while, you know that starting in about 2016, we've been advocating for prioritizing coverage over pass rush. And by and large, we felt that the game shifted towards the passing game and quarterbacks were getting better at beating pass rush with quick throws. A cornerback success was more difficult to neutralize on any given play. And while ultimately the two things were interrelated, there was a clear preference for coverage over pass rush. While David can't be with us this week, he's taken the week off. I thought it would be good to dig into the, dig into the article, talk to the authors and learn a bit more about what went into writing an article like this how you can disaggregate the two, which seem like the pass rush and coverage, which seem like they're kind of interrelated, and how this maybe applies a bit to the 49ers and how they are opting to build their team. So here's my conversation with Eric Eager from Pro Football Focus. Eric Eager, thanks so much for joining the Better Rivals podcast. How are you, man? I'm doing well, man. How are you? I am doing swimmingly, and I'm super excited that you wrote this article because I think it's one of the more fun questions to debate. It's definitely one that I get into a lot with friends of mine, bar conversations. Uh, I'm usually the outlier in, in the conversation where I'm like, no, 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 guys, coverage. And everyone's like, no, pass rush. Uh, and, and so it was really interesting to both read the article and see your approach to it because I thought it was overall really, really good. Well, thank you for reading. And we certainly, you know, um, over, I would say, you know, about 18 months ago, I started working with George and, and, uh, working more deeply on our data and in, in trying to predict games, I just, I, the, the coefficients for coverage kept popping up as like the first or second, you know, on, you know, oh, actually second or third, whether it's like receiving or, or coverage being second. Uh, and I was always so surprised. And so, like, I would have these conversations with George, like, well, what, what, is, what do we take of this? What do we mean about this? And, and you know, we take it to people within PFF who grade games. And, and you know, a lot of times, I think at, at first people are like, this kind of flies in the face of, you know, whatever we've, we've known about football. And so we've, we've tried over the last, like, you know, 18 months or so to try to disprove it, whether looking at, like, play level grades or whether looking at, like, season level, game level. And it always seems to be the same thing. And so... You know, even though I think that there's still probably a chance that this is wrong, you know, as, as or the game evolves back to a place where pass rushes, uh, you know, the this the most important thing for defense currently. Uh, that's kind of our our strong position. And of course, when you mentioned George, you're speaking of George Shahuri. He's also a data scientist at PFF. He was supposed to be here, but he actually had uh, he got trapped at the gym uh, behind all of his ginormous plates that he lifts twice a day, apparently. Uh, to get triceps that big. So well, anyone who ha- who knows him on Twitter, fellow Niner fan, just give him a little crap because he should be here, but instead he's probably locked in a gym somewhere. You know, it takes so... So George is one of the more dedicated people at almost everything that I know. And so 
uh, I think it probably was my mistake. And I said, okay, we're on Wednesday with Oscar and, and, uh, and I might not have put the time. And so of course, you know, he's, he's, he, he, you know, he lifts twice a day. So I work out with him during the day, uh, while we're at work. And then of course he comes back. So like anytime I like want to hang out with him at night, he's like, well, it has to be after my second workout. So, you know, I, bodies like that don't come for free. So he certainly, uh, he certainly puts a lot of work into it. All right. So about the, the, the pass rush versus coverage question, how do you even begin to approach a question like this? Because one of the things that you often get is like, well, the, the people who try to, the, the peacemakers in this conversation, right? If you look at one side of the debate and they're like coverage and the other side's like, no, pass rush. Usually there's a group of people in the middle who are saying, guys, they're both, they're correlated. They're interrelated. You can't really disaggregate them. So how do you even begin to approach a question like this to isolate one of the variables and say, all right, we can actually measure them independently? Yeah. I mean, I think what's really nice about PFF is like we do, you know, our best in order to isolate them in our grading process. So the the play by play guys who grade the games, you know, David, you know, all those folks, they they are they are trying to grade them independently. And in the piece, we show that at the team level and also at the player level, you know, they're not you know, they're not particularly correlated year to year. So that is a pretty nice thing for PFF to have in its back pocket is this is this fact that like we do have teams that who have great pass rushing grades and poor coverage grades and poor cover you know poor pass rushing grades and great coverage grades and so just statistically speaking like we do see um, you know there is some correlation but you're talking about like the one variable explaining about two percent of the variance in the other which is not much at all uh, and so that's kind of where you start and then you kind of look at there's a few different ways like obviously you can look at like correlating it with something like expected points you can look at correlating it with team wins season to season um and then you can like embed it into like a wins above replacement model and see which types of players end up being more valuable it's always since being corners and coverage coverage players like safeties and linebackers over edge players strangely um and then uh, and, and and also just looking at things like okay if if i look at the collection of teams that have that are you know top third in the NFL in coverage, but bottom third in pass rush. How many games do they win on average? And then similarly, uh, in the other direction, we find that teams that are really good at coverage and a little and a, and weak in pass rush win about a game and a half more per season than the opposite. Which is, was a really striking uh, finding and, and one of the you know places we look to see. Okay, are we on the right track here? So when you're when you're thinking about disaggregating them a lot of the underpinning math is going to come based on those PFF grades. And you mentioned the process. You mentioned David, of course, it's, it's his job now. He actually grades film. But there was a little bit of a back and forth with Joe Banner on the Twitters today about whether or not this finding was even valid. And he basically said, well, the entire argument is underpinned on whether or not you think that PFF grades are good. And I found something very different, like, you know, five or six years ago, whenever we ran the study from MIT, so what would you say to someone who's sitting here and who's listening to this and they're thinking, you know what, I, I just I don't believe the PFF grades. I think they're total crap. And, and so if you're going to base a model around those grades, then that's crap, too. Yeah, I mean, I think first off, I think most of the people, you know, who have who have who have had that opinion um, have eventually like, you know, there, there's a famous uh, coach. who I'll, I'll, you know, not name the person because I think he might have. Uh, uh, ties with with some of the teams that uh, that you guys root for, but basically he's had the, you know had that l- lament, and he came in and actually like we showed him around and we showed him you know the math and we showed him how things correlate with each other and everything, and he ended up buying in. 
Um, you know, I think that ends up being what happens when a person ha- comes at it with an open mind. Um, but it's also more of a philosophical question in that, like, almost everything we derive is subjective to a point, right? So, like, scouts grades, like, we're not going to sit here and say, like, you know, the the uh, a mid-level scout for the Seahawks doesn't know anything because his grades, you know, are subjective. We're going to we're going to try to glean information from that, like. Uh, a grade point average for a high school or college student is, you know, is as somebody who's graded a lot of college calculus papers is extremely subjective, you know? So, uh, you know, every, almost everything we, we attach a number to has some sort of human element to it. Even like pass block win rate for ESPN, like they had to come up with what they defined a pressure to be. And that's, you know, that's something that's hum- human. And, and, and so the, the point isn't whether subjectivity is in the, in the space, it's can you glean predictive power out of it? And with PFF grades, we've seen that that's been, you know, the, the outcome in almost every instance. You know, and I think one of the valuable things that PFF does more than other places, at least in my experience with it, both as a consumer of the content and as, you know, being best friends with someone who lives that life is, is how PFF has operationalized a lot of this, because I think that's the difficult part. I think what scouts do is they probably have some measure of operationalization in their mind and they say, okay, when I see these types of things, those are generally good. And this is where scouting speak, I think starts to get kind of, kind of funny because when they, they talk about things like fluid hips or, you know, loose hips or whatever, you know, whatever scouting term they're going to use, they're trying to operationalize the things that they're seeing. And, And what PFF has done is they've actually put like actual rules around, okay, when you see this, this is what it means. When you say this is what you grade this is a plus 0.5, this is a minus 0.5. And there is some subjectivity in there, but to your point, it's all a little subjective, but the better you can operationalize it, the better you can teach people, the better you can refine that operationalization, and the better your results are going to be, I think, over time. I totally agree. You know, I think, and that's exactly why, you know, teachers develop rubrics and, and, you know, and, and it's, you know, the more operational you can get, you know, and what's interesting is that like the PFF grade system has because we've been a company, you know, since 2000, we started grading games live in like 2008. We've gone back and graded other, you know, 2006, 2007. But one of the things that math allows you to do is go back and like adjust things. Right. So like whenever I use our grades, I use some mathematical models to add a year effect because I know that like because we've gotten team clients, you know, over the, over the course of the last decade, we've gotten college team clients. So we've had, you know, consultants, we've had Chris buy the company, you know, we had other people buying the company. Like, I know that these things are different. Right. And so like, you have to add in like year effects, uh, you have to add in context. Right. So sometimes, you know, you know, after learning, like we, as a football community had no idea what an RPO was 10 years ago. Right. But we were still grading games back then. So like things do change and, but there are, luckily mathematical tactics that you can use and what's really cool so not to plug a ben reader's book called astroball kind of talks about this a little bit but essentially the idea is that like scouts kind of have those biases as well and what you can do is kind of kind of go in and use math to sort of adjust those numbers uh and, and say okay this is a scout that th- when when he says fluid hips for a safety he really means it and when he says athleticism for a tackle he really doesn't so uh, there's a ton of different, like, really cool ways, um, you know, and we're just scratching the surface on it. But I do think PFF, having had that stuff, you know, uh, institutionalized for a long time, uh, you know, really has, you know, a feather in its cap in this case. 
So you, you take a lot of this data that you have from PFF and you've got PFF grades and you've got the, in the team grades and you've got an individual's grades and you put those together into, you know, what is effectively a way to examine this question. And it was the conclusion just basically as simple as, well, coverage is better than pass rush because that seems to be what most of the debate in this area is kind of reduced to. It seems that it's kind of you're either one or the other. And if you know anything about logic, then you know that usually false dichotomies are not, they are not good places to be. Those are usually fallacious. So it is the dichotomy really it's one or the other, or was the finding a bit kind of different? Yeah. I mean, the, the key thing that we came on that like curbed a lot of the, the coverage uh, you know, uh, our zeal for coverage was the fact that it's not as stable year to year. Um, you know, the co correlation coefficient is about half that of pass rushers. So like, as I put in the piece, like the next Aaron Donald next, you know, in 2019 is probably going to be Aaron Donald, but the, the next Stefan Gilmore is very unlikely to be Stefan Gilmore, you know, just by the way that things work, you know, two years ago is Casey Hayward and Jalen Ramsey you know, a few years before that, it was Daryl Revis. Like, these guys change, um, you know, because the nature of the position is different, right? Like, it, it very much depends upon speed and quickness and things like that. And it's just kind of random, right? Like, you're going to have, you know, your schedule is going to be such often that you're facing DeAndre Hopkins twice a year. You're facing, uh, you know, you, you face the Vikings with Adam Thielen and Stephon Diggs once every so often. And so there's a lot of randomness there. And the opportunity space is also you know, not necessarily as rich as I think David will tell you, like, you know, it's, there's some, there's usually something gradable for a defensive lineman on every single play in coverage. It's a lot like more, I would say like op opaque in the sense that like, you know, on the, on the weak side of the play, you know, we don't, you know, they bracket a guy and no one, you know, it's kind of a stalemate there, you know, and, and, and the real definitive stuff happens when the ball's in the air and that happens far less frequently. So um, for me, it's like I refrain by saying, you know, like you're probably very, you know, if you buy into an edge player, you're probably going to get a lot out of that. But A, the guy's extremely expensive and B, his impact on your defense isn't going to be that big. So overall, if you got to this kind of more nuanced place where you're like, OK, so it's not just one over everything, but because the instability of coverage is the problem here. And so you're going to have one thing that's stable versus another that's in, uh, unstable. Then wouldn't you want to throw more resources into the stable thing since you know that's at least kind of predictive? Or is is there anything else about you know, kind of pass rush that you can maybe apply more resources or get better at that helps offset some of the instability of coverage? Oh, certainly. And, and yeah, pass rush always affects quarterbacks negatively. And so, you know, having a good pass rush is something that's extremely important. Um, but as we saw with New England, you can sort of scheme that, you know, by, you know, they had Trey Flowers, but, you know, there's, um, you know, they, they got by with guys like Jabal Sheard and, and you know, things like that uh, in the last few years. Um, but I, I think the, the key point here is that it's much like the NFL draft. Like the, the teams that do really well in the NFL draft know that they are not particularly good at picking players relative to other teams. They just pick a lot of players. And so, like, you look at the Eagles approach in 2017, for example, they didn't just buy the most expensive corner on the market. They used their second and third round pick on corners. They signed Patrick Robinson to approve it deal. They traded for Ronald Darby. They signed Rodney McLeod the year before. And so like, you know, Jalen Mills, you know, was a guy that they invested in the previous year. And so like now that you have like six NFL caliber defensive, you know, corners and you only need three to work out, you just increase your odds. Right. So none of them were certainly break the bank type of players. Um, but they, but as a unit, they were great. And, 
you know, that supplemented, you know, their pass rush had been good forever. Um, but, you know, the, the coverage supplemented that. And I think, you know, you could also approach it like New England, who has like basically one stud corner and a bunch of guys that play roles. But I think you throw a lot of resources at corner in maybe a, a quantity aspect. And, and in, in, for edge, you sort of look for quality. Um, but quality is expensive. So it, it's, really a, it's really an interesting question that one I'm not exactly sure if I, you know, if I was recommending to a team if I'd have a firm answer. That, that was the discussion I thought that was super interesting pre-draft for the 49ers, which is you, you look at someone like, let's say the Niners were to have traded down, then you're in a situation where maybe you get an edge, maybe you can get a corner in the middle of that first round, and you maybe have a bit more predictive power with edge rushers from college to pros because you can grade almost every snap. There is something they can do, so your sample size is going to be a little larger. But with corners, they're, they're a bit more valuable because when they shut down a play, they really shut down a play. The outcome is a bit more definitive than when an edge rusher just kind of beats the tackle and then Tom Brady gets it out in one and a half seconds and it doesn't matter. And so I thought that was a really, really interesting discussion. So when you think about implementing these findings for a team, like let's say the 49ers, and you are making recommendations to a team, then like what would you recommend for the teams like the 49ers who are ailing that coverage department to have done? I mean, it, it's tough because it, there's there's some evidence. I you know we looked at some of the draft trades this year that that trading trading back was not was not a particularly like fruitful. Like teams were teams that were trading up were not giving away as much, at, right? So if you're the Niners and you uh, you know two seasons ago got you know a ransom for the Trubisky pick and you're now getting offered far less, like it, it would have been hard for them to trade down. But I I still would have likely have done that just because again, like you can you know, you can just stockpile on, you know, athletic players. And then the interesting thing about athletic players in the secondary as well is they add versatility because you need, you know, pass rushers are basically doing one thing. They're rushing the passer, but, you know, in the, in the defensive backfield, you have deep, you have the Earl Thomas type of safety. You have the Derwin James, Cam Chancellor type safety. You have the Tyron Matthew safety. You can play in the slot and play deep. You have court, you have outside corners, you have inside corners. And so like, you know, some guys who might not be successful at one of those roles can play another one. Whereas like, you know, Solomon Thomas, for example, like he's kind of a bust and, you know, they can try him inside and stuff, but like, there's likely not going to be all that great of a role for him in San Francisco moving forward. And like, that's the risk you take, um, you know, when, when, you know, you sort of over, you know, when you put a lot of resources into edge and it doesn't end up working out type thing. So if you're looking at the Niners, and the Niners, of course, didn't put a lot of resources into the secondary. If we're saying that secondary is not as stable and this year's Stephon Gilmore may not be next year's Stephon Gilmore, what do you think about the likelihood of all of these players taking some kind of step forward? Because this is the gamble that, that John Lynch is making, right? He's saying that Adrian Colbert might return to form, Akella Witherspoon might return to form, that Jason Verrett might play his first season more, maybe more than four or five games since you know 2015, I think it was. Um, is that a strategy where, you know what, this is unstable enough that if it was down the previous year, then, hey, there's nowhere to go but up? Yeah, that that's a good way to say it. I mean, the, the the hard part is again, it's like it's just the it's the the number of ands right in the equation. Like you you almost need you know Kwan Williams, you know Richard Sherman, Jason Verrett, all you know that all of them need to you know be be really good in order for the secondary to like make a significant step forward. Um, whereas you know on the defensive line, like. You know, you, you probably need Bosa or D Ford to do really well. You need, you know, DeForest Buckner 
or Solomon Thomas to be great to have a pretty good pass rush. And like, and then the benefits of all of them, as we saw with Kansas City, the benefits when all of your defensive linemen end up being brilliant is still like curbed by the fact that your secondary isn't great, right? So um, that's why, you know, I think it's a, taking a lot of shots in the secondary is huge because, you know, the probability that all six of these guys work out is pretty low, but the probability that a subset, a, a random subset of three of them will is, is pretty good. And so, you know, that's, um, so, you know, Verrett was a guy who's, you know, a lot of potential, like there's a, there's a chance that the Niners are going to be good in the secondary. It's just not a bet I'm willing to make. So it, one of the things that you mentioned in your article too, was that your defensive success is largely predicated on the offenses that you're facing. And I mean, quarterbacks are very, very good. You think of Drew Brees, you think of Tom Brady, you think of now Patrick Mahomes, he's in that stratosphere as well. There's not much that you can do to really hold those types of quarterbacks down. So is maybe one of the other kind of tangential findings of the paper, um, I, should, I call it a paper, but I mean of the article, right? I mean, it kind of read like a paper. Well, hey, you're a doctor. <laughs> we'll call it a paper. Um, <laughs> but is one of the tangential kinds of findings that really just start throwing everything into your offense, find the quarterback, get wide receivers. Maybe this is the only time running backs actually matter um, because if you can dictate the game on offense, then all these things that people are doing on defense, well, you render the discussion moot. Oh, and, and I, I mentioned in the article too, like why pass rush year to year is not particularly predictive of defensive success is very much because quarterbacks, their year to year performance under pressure is not particularly stable, right? So, some years quarterbacks have these like strange random 2013 Josh McCown streaks to them when under pressure. And some years they, they literally, you know, fold like a lawn chair. Right. And, and it's a hundred percent. Like, I think, you know, it is like, I think Josh Hermsmeyer was another uh, like Bay area guy who, you know, he said something like your, your defense, the way that your defense performs is just a combination of how the offenses against you perform on average. And, and that is very like that is very you know I think a, a wise null hypothesis and and I think what we're saying at PFF is that if you have great coverage players they can take advantage of the rare mistakes that a guy like Pat Mahomes makes um, and and give you steal an extra possession or two against these great great teams and that's oftentimes all it takes right so um, whereas if you have a weaker secondary. You're not. You're almost never in position to take advantage of their rare mistakes, and so you're. You have to be perfect on the offensive offensive side of the ball, which is almost never the case uh, for teams with you know quarterbacks that aren't in that top three or four. So, um, I, I that is like one of the undertones there is that like defense. I'm not saying that defense doesn't matter, but defense oh, is, certainly is that the new running backs win. doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, De- yeah, right. Defense does. Defense doesn't win championships, but it does matter. You know, like that's kind of how I'll say it. One of the parts I think of the article that that put my head a little bit like in like, what the hell did I just read is the the difference between the stability of coverage and the predictability of or and the ability for coverage to be predictive in the next year. How, how does that square for, for someone who is like, all right, so you're telling me that coverage is not stable year to year, but then you're telling me that it can predict performance from one year to the next more so than the thing that is more stable, which is pass rush. Help me understand that because I'm still, I think, a little confused by that. Those two things seem to be operating in diametrically opposed areas. Exactly. So that and that's what allows that article to be written, right? So if we had a situation where you know, co- you know, coverage was able to explain past performance um, really well, but wasn't able to predict future performance at all, 
then it, we could chalk that up and say, okay, it's too unstable year to year to be a reliable metric. Much like, you know, when I wrote in that running back article, essentially that's how running backs are. If you tell me a team ran for 150 yards, I'm pretty confident in saying the running back graded well. But if you have a high graded grading running back, I'm not confident at all in saying he's going to be a, a very efficient running back the following year. Does that make sense? So, so, so the, the, the instability as well as the unimportance collide and make it make that, you know, that issue occur. Whereas in coverage, it's like, it is unstable, but it still allows for a signal because it's not, it's not completely unstable. It's just less stable than, than pass rush. Um, and, and, and that was where sort of, we concluded that it was the more important. It, it's the signal driving thing in a defense, even though players were less likely to be able to say, this guy is, you know, you know, super good one. You're going to be super good the next. Yeah, that makes sense. So basically the, the unit is the thing that's important as opposed to the individual. Yes. Uh, yes. That, that's a, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. The unit, the unit is important. Um, it, it, right. And that's why we see like, that's why, again, the bet should be to, to get five guys in your secondary who collectively are great. Um, and you know, obviously that's a, that, that's a collection of players who are individually good usually, but, but there is some like, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts dynamics as well. Were there any surprises that you came across when you were looking at, uh, what I can only imagine is a god-awful long SPS or SPSS sheet. I don't know if you use SPSS, but that's what I used in school, and so I'm just going to go ahead and presume that's what it was. Uh, but was there any surprises that you saw where you were like, huh, that's, that's the, the ear dog tilt moment? Well, you and I are probably the same age then, because when I was learning statistics in college, you know, before I, I, I did use SPSS and it was a nightmare. So, oh, it was awful. Um, it was god-awful. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think... One of the things that I found was interesting is when I looked at war, um, like wins above replacement, which is, again, using these grades plus a value component plus a volume component. Um, it, it was interesting because, you know, what ended up happening was, you know, the instability actually weighted a little bit. Like if you add in volume, you can actually you know be a little bit more sure uh, of how good a, a corner is and to a higher degree of safety and even to a higher degree linebacker. So. You know, if you're looking at, for example, the 49ers, you have Fred Warner, you know, pretty good player a season ago. Like you're going to be you're going to be more sure that he's a pretty good player in coverage than you are a corner. But they're both like, you know, more stable than you would think from a value perspective. Right. So, again, it's sort of like what we just talked about, which is like, you know, the, the grades and the innards of the of the data set are not particularly stable. But once you apply their effect on football, they end up being they end up you know generating a little bit more of it, whereas you know, the, the edge players and things like that are doing, you know, doing things repeatedly and they're, you know, we're able to capture how good they are, uh, you know, relatively well, but what they do sort of has little effect moving forward on how, how good a team is. And, you know, that's when I look at what the Niners have done in terms of putting their assets into the team on defense. I think that David said it perfectly on the last show when he said that John Lynch is very clearly trying to remake this defense in the image that he knows, which is, Warren Sapp in the front and the front seven being the fearsome part of the defense and then coverage, you know, being there, but definitely the defense being led by that front seven. And I think that's what he's trying to do. He's throwing resources at the front seven in a way that he should be throwing them in coverage. And, and that can still get you a decently good defense. Um, but this is an area where I think when you look at the linebackers, the Niners have drafted. 
they have drafted linebackers that do seem to do well in coverage if you exclude Malcolm Smith. You look at what Fred Warner did in college. You look at what Quan Alexander even did. And although I'm not super wild about that signing, he's not a bad coverage linebacker if he's able to return to form. Uh, and so if that's the case, and even though cut, you know that coverage is then predictive a bit, and then and we can expect that to continue, that at least buoys my hope a little bit for that linebacking core and a little bit of that front seven because that secondary is still scary as a holy get out. Yeah, that's a really good point about the Buccaneers, right? Because, you know, those defenses they had, you know, they had Warren Sapp and Simeon Rice who's, and then Derek Brooks. And I think Derek Brooks, would, as great as he was when he played for Tampa, would be even more lethal now, right? Just because of the way, you know, the NFL has moved towards these linebackers being guys that can play in space. So, yeah, I think that's great. It's interesting Lynch being a former safety, sort of having maybe the humility to think that he wasn't that good and therefore not that important, or or maybe being more like Mike Singletary and realizing that no one could have played as well as me, so I'm not even going to try to acquire said player. Uh, but it, that's it's really interesting to think about. You know, the Bucks, the Bucks were kind of ahead of their time because, Bar- you know, Rondé Barber was a player who played inside and outside uh, in a league that was just starting to learn that you can create mismatches in the slot. And I think you know, we found previously, you know, one of the other surprising things we found as we were looking at, you know, this data was that like slot coverage, like throwing to the slot and to the tight end, as Niners fans know, is the most valuable play in, in the passing game. And so you need your guys to be trained there. And, and, you know, the Buccaneers were so much ahead of their curve in like the early 2000s having Barber there. Um, and it doesn't, you know, come on, Williams has experience there, but you know, sort of his career has been sort of up and down. So it'll be interesting to see how he can, you know, rebound from, you know, a season ago, which I thought he was, you know, just kind of okay. Um, but he certainly, you know, has been on the decline since a pretty good, you know, rookie season. Yeah, I don't know John Lynch, but if I were to guess, I would say he's probably going to end up on the humble side of that uh, of that line because he, when he did get the job, the first thing he did was he tried to go out and get someone who had been there before, who was an up and comer, and he got Martin Mayhew and he got Adam Peters to help bolster that front office. And they're pretty top-heavy when you think about it. They've got three effective GM-level uh, people at the top of that, uh, of that front office. And so I think I'd probably lean with him being on, on the humble side if I, were to, if I were to take a gander, just based on, on his actions and, and not knowing anything else. And so, I mean, I think that bodes well for, for him as a human. Hopefully that means he can correct some of, these, uh, some of these draft decisions and some of these you know, kind of non-decisions, because I think inaction is also a, a choice in some of these areas. But... Um, yeah, it, that's that's one thing I think hopefully if we're looking at where the Niners can improve is it maybe in that middle area, the coverage is going to be pretty solid. And and so I think that's that's something to look forward to. And we'll see how that actually has an effect on the defense. But let's get to yeah. what's next, yeah. because you alluded in, in at the end of the article that I think the direct quote was there was new and existing data to be collected, analyzed and interpreted. So what kinds of data are you thinking about when you say a statement like that? Is there other data maybe that you can see coming down the, the pike? Or are you looking at, are you thinking of the next way of analyzing the existing data set that you already have? I think it's a little of both, right? So we, you know, they had the big data bowl with the NGS, the tracking data and stuff like that at the, you know, the December and January uh, of this last year. I think the, I think, you know, studying and analyzing. So say, for example, a safety, right? And you want to know, how much space the safety controls on the football field. I think, you know, a model that like folks use in soccer, you know, could be extremely valuable there. So we could tell, you know, maybe do a better job of capturing just how 
dominant a player uh, like Earl Thomas is over a player like Trey Boston, right? Because if you just look at like when he's targeted and, and you know and all that kind of stuff, like there's you know kind of similar you know low sample size. You can kind of wave your hands at those things. But I think anybody that watches football knows that Trey Boston's a fine safety, but Earl Thomas is a dominating football player that's worth quite a bit, right? And I think tracking data can give us that sort of like insights into those sorts of things. Um, I, I think you you know obviously there can be more. We can place more of an emphasis on the you know on the chart on our you know hand charting and things like that. Um, we have in the past historically, like for example, I know George has talked to you a little bit probably about the the accuracy charting that we do for quarterbacks. And one of those things where we we literally found that like with zero graded passes, there was a significant difference in how accurate a guy was in the outcome of a play. And so, um, you know, we could look at those zero graded coverage plays and maybe maybe differentiate them a little bit better. So there's so much to be done there. And I think like that's exciting. And I and I think one of the, the cool things about being, you know, PFF is no longer in this area where we're you know, trying to sell to all 32 teams or we're trying to, you know, tell media members that we're legit. Like we're in a space now where we can sort of like approach these problems, you know, with this, you know, humility and say like, we've, we've taken this a long way, but we still got a long way to go. And, and, and it's an exciting part. And we want to be a you know part of that, you know, solution. All right. So last thing before you go, actually two questions before you go one, just cause I'm curious, cause I'm, I'm, I really love cheeseburgers. So I'll get to the cheeseburger question in a second, but um, if you were talking to someone and you're like, and they're like, all right, I've got this friend. We talk, we, you know, we talk football, we drink beer. He is seemingly never convinced by the arguments that I lay out that coverage is more important. What would be the one thing to say? The one death knell where you're like, all right, just say this and see if he can work his way out of it. What's the, what's the kill shot argument in this case? I would say that there have been two big free agent signings by the best mind in the history of the game over the last 10 years and they were both corners Man, so daryl daryl revis in 2014 um and uh stefan gilmore in 2017 are the only two high priced free agents on the defensive side of the ball that bill belichick has signed in the last decade and then they're going to tell you that he also traded up in the fifth round to draft a punter and then it all falls apart Right. Or he drafted. So, so I, uh, my friend, Kevin Cole uh, took this out of his podcast, but hopefully you don't edit this out. Um, I think Bill Belichick drafted a running back last year to throw everybody off the scent. He's just, he's literally saying, you know what? I'm just going to lay fucking confusion to everything. Just, I don't yes. care. That's it. <laughs> he's bored. And that's why he drafted a running back. He, he ran play action in April. Like, I'm talking like, because <laughs> Because, A, they had two first-round picks, right? So, like, you know, they draft a starter and Isaiah win. And then, like, Sony Michelle's fine. And, like, Belichick's not – Belichick's smart enough where he can, like, play with – you know, he can play football with, like – like, he won a Super Bowl without Gronk playing against the Falcons. Like, he can play he – he can play all these other coaches with one hand tied behind his back. So, like, he's like, I, I'm going to, you know – I'm going to screw with the whole league and draft a running back in the first round. And these folks are going to spend the next 12 months thinking about what the angle is when there is none and, and not dedicate the resources elsewhere. I, I don't know. I, it might be a, a bit galaxy brain, but I'm, that's what I, that's what I truly think. He's single-handedly making sure the Seattle Seahawks never get to another Super Bowl. Just you, imagine Pete Carroll on the offense. Like, see, I told you, got to go get another running back. Gotta that go one do was it. too close, right? So he doesn't want to risk it again. Yeah, not at all. Yeah, that's easy. 
You're about to steal that punter from the Niners. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, Eric, thanks for coming on, man. I, I appreciate the time, and, and thanks for uh, writing that article because I think it, it helped me understand a lot, and, and I appreciated the conclusions and, and how y'all approached the, the nuance that y'all found with the data that you have. Oscar, thanks for having me on, man. It's oh, fun. almost forgot. Favorite cheeseburger you've ever had. Go. Well, so here's the thing. I don't eat cheese. Oh, hold um, on. Hold on. Okay. Let's back up for a minute. You don't eat cheese. Why? So I grew up in Minnesota, and while I'm no longer – well, I'm not no longer a Vikings fan. I don't root for them as vociferously as I did when I grew up. Grew up. Um, but I, I used to hate the Packers with the, with, you know, the fire of a million suns. And so part of it was philosophical. Like you, I just hate cheese. You're a, you're a protest I, non-cheese eater. <laughs> I and, love it. And then the other thing is like I legitimately like when I started incorporating it in my life, I like didn't like it. I, I liked it on pizza and I liked it on maybe nachos, but like I very much do not like cheese, uh, you know, on, on burgers. So um, but that being said, so in terms of hamburgers, it's, it's crazy. Like when I was living in Nebraska for my PhD, uh, I, I started to eat and, uh, really enjoyed backyard burger, which I know is like, I don't know if it's a chain or anything, but, uh, it certainly is better than anything I've had before or after, especially for like a fast foodish type joint. All right. And so since you don't eat cheese, last question, have you had queso? I'm not talking just about cheese it with a Spanish, mildly Spanish accent. I'm talking about the actual melted cheesy dip that you have in the southwestern area of the U.S., primarily Texas. I have, I have sampled queso, um, but not in the, I would imagine, authentic way uh, that you're implying. <laughs> I, like a Chipotle, I've had it before. Oh, um, that's and, not queso. And I don't, oh, oh and, that hurts my heart. Oh, God. And I don't have it. I don't have it regularly. Only because like I don't have the greatest diet in the world, and so not eating cheese is like maybe my only like the only feather in my cap that way. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not gonna lie; you are vaguely Seth Rogen-ish. Uh, yeah, that's it's true. It's true. I'm sorry, Eric. It's true. But you know, know. what? We'll we'll do this. We will uh, have queso from Torchy's Tacos here in Austin. We will take it to George's second workout, and we will consume said queso uh, while he throws plates around and does all of his fancy stuff. I, I can only imagine he would he would find that encroachment on his life uh, delightful. Yeah, I would imagine so. Uh, well, <laughs> we'll let you go. I've already taken too much of your time. Eric, thanks again for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks again to Eric for coming on and talking about the coverage versus pass rush debate. We may take a week off, but I'm going to try and trick David into coming back with a little bit of beer and maybe some punter talk and definitely a Game of Thrones watch party. You can always follow me on Twitter at Better Rivals. Thanks again for listening, and as always, go Niners.